introed. This is a chode of an introed. What? <laughs> I'm leaving that in. The funniest quote I heard all day yesterday was when my friend Sandy said to me, do you like my new bracelet? I got it from a raffle at the Satanic Temple. <laughs> I was like, that's the best. I'm, that is my favorite quote. I want to go to a raffle at the Satanic Temple. Well, what it was was she, they're also child free by choice. And so she is, she just got sterilized. She had her fallopian tubes removed. And she, so what she did was she uh, donated money to their reproductive rights fund Uh i don't know if you've heard what they're doing but a lot of states have like a religious clause so like if you're jewish and you go in to get a heart thing done they can't put a pig valve in your heart because you're jewish and that's against your religion so the satanic temple is making a ritual an abortion ritual so that people can't force you to get an ultrasound or hear the baby's heartbeat or whatever yeah so this fund i guess from what she said is basically like the the money for the defense lawyer that's going to be needed for this <laughs> because you fucking know the tree uh the creationists are going to come after us so but yeah so she got this bracelet and it's really cute and it says um i am my own master and it has a little pentagram and baphomet on it that sounds really cute it's cute i want one i know like can we order can we donate to the, the Satanic Temple? And- <laughs> Welcome to The Strange and Unusual, where we discuss the strange and unusual. This is episode 42 of our series, seeking out the weird, the unexplained, and the devious from around the world. I'm Casey. And I'm Raya. And today, we're going to be talking about Israel. So what are you going to be talking about today, Casey? Um, Since I care deeply. You care deeply for the first time. Uh, I will be talking about a... Sidonian tomb in the land of a thousand caves. That sounds interesting. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I think you'll enjoy it because it's a little funny. Oh, uh-huh, I'm I am down for funny. Mine is not funny. Oh, you should probably go first. <laughs> I bet someone's gonna die. Some ones? Oh, yes. m- multiple ones are gonna die. <laughs> Just two, two ones. Two ones. Two ones. Well, tell me about the two ones. <laughs> All right. So I spent so much time yesterday trying to say her name correctly. All right. Mm-hmm. Been there. Anat Alimlik was born in 1974 in Jerusalem. She was a popular and she was very popular and beautiful all throughout her school and education. Lucky. Super. <laughs> Super charming, super intelligent, just like aces all around for the DNA in Anat. And she started to enter and win beauty pageants all throughout Israel. Like in 1992, she won Miss Kenyon and became the model for the agency called Look. Okay. This is also where she met David Afuda. He was 14 years her senior and was an extremely high-profile hairdresser. I thought you were going to say, he was 14 years old. And I was like, oh, God, no. <laughs> no, this isn't a Anakin and Padme situation. 
She was 16. He was 10. <laughs> That's not a good look. Anyway, so the two people who are definitely of age mm-hmm. in this story <laughs> began dating uh, soon after they were they met. And in 1993, Anat competed in the Miss Israel pageant mm-hmm. and won, earning the title Queen of Grace. Oh, that's nice. In 1995, she competed in a segment of the Israeli version of Wheel of Fortune. Ooh. Where the game show was looking for their new, quote, wheel girl, the Vanna White position gotcha. in the U.S. Um, she didn't, however, win and get the job, but she did gain a lot of attention for her beauty and her personality. And this opened doors to her for acting and getting involved in other media. So in 1996, she was in a couple of children's movies as well as a television commercial for a Israeli grocery store chain. And in 1997, she was working on an Israeli singing show, like a talent competition style show. But that didn't really help her deal with what was going on between her and her boyfriend, David Afuda. Things were getting worse between them. They were fighting more and more to the point that Anat moved back in with her father and his second wife. It was evidently so heated between the two that her father filed a request with the police to have Afuda's personal guns confiscated out of fear that he would use them against Anat. Damn. Which is something that I think is kind of awesome that I didn't, like, why don't we have that? Why don't we have a, like, can you please, like, look into this and go take his guns away because he's dangerous? Uh, Second Amendment, that's why. (laughs) Can you please reevaluate his sanity? Yeah, we don't do that to begin with, so. Fair. We don't need to reevaluate. We've never evaluated to begin with. (laughs) This, however, the the filing of this request was never completed uh, because Anat demanded that the request be dropped by her father, not able to even imagine that David would actually raise a hand to her and harm her in a eternal sense. I'm guessing she was wrong. Well, that's important <laughs> later. Gotcha. <laughs> Spoilers. On December 1st, 1997... She was on air for the Israeli singing show, The Festival, uh, with all the other participants in the show. However, on December 2nd, 1997, Anat and David were found dead in their home. Anat was shot once. David was shot twice. Okay. It was determined during the preliminary investigation that based on the body positioning, the fact that David was shot twice... And the gun was literally in Anat's hand that she killed him first and then herself. Mm. As a result of this, Anat was buried in the suicide section of a Jewish cemetery. So I was curious about this. So I looked it up. And evidently it's a tradition falling out of favor in more modern times. But suicide is heavily frowned upon Mm -hmm. in any Judeo- christian western religion i mean most religions i think in general but especially the like abrahamic yeah and it's used to mean that a person wouldn't so basically committing suicide used to mean that the person wouldn't be able to be even buried in a cemetery Mm -hmm. but in more modern times there was a section of jewish cemeteries for those who killed themselves so the family could still go and visit them 
and they were still given basic human rights as far as a a burial of their choosing but it was like the this this section is the people going to hell (laughs) um and normal funeral rites and traditions were not given during the burial of someone who committed suicide Mm -hmm. from what i was reading and again very basic quick reading of like what is the suicide section (laughs) so basically in normal a normal jewish funeral just like most other like yeah abrahamic western religions is there's a whole set of rites there's a whole set of traditions prayers specific things that are said over at a funeral for someone who has committed suicide the person who committed suicide doesn't get the rights, but the family and the individuals that were close to them will get blessings and rights and their side of the traditions, but the person who committed suicide won't get their side of the traditional stuff. So obviously this upset her father. Um, he had no reason to believe that his beautiful, intelligent, and vibrant daughter would have any reason to kill herself. Especially when her career was on such an upswing. Mm-hmm. he She wasn't living with David anymore. She was out of the danger. She was starting to get better. Everything was going well. Why would she suddenly do this? So her father began to pressure the police to look into the case more. Perhaps, like some people, he just couldn't handle the thought of his darling child killing herself. It's a really common thing that a lot of people struggle with is it has to be something else. Because there's no reason that they would have killed themselves. I can't make logical sense of it. Mm -hmm. I didn't see any signs. So that must mean that there was something else. There was an accident. It was unintentional. So the further that the police looked into things, though, the stranger things seemed to get. They discovered that the original team who had investigated had been negligent and took the crime at face value. So they went there, saw... David was shot twice, Anat's holding the gun, the way the bodies are positioned. It looks pretty cut and dry. And so they started to question members of both families, trying to figure out who knew anything about what was going on between the two, anything to sort of justify, would she have done this? You know, had she been talking to a relative and saying, man, I just wish he would go away. I just wish something would happen to him. Like, is there anything in conversations to think that she was either suicidal or homicidal. Mm -hmm. Well, with this information, the prior concern her father had of David Afuda being dangerous and armed, the police came to the determination that David Afuda had likely killed Anat and then himself. Hmm. But how did he shoot himself twice? And then how did the gun end up in her hand? Well, you see, David's brother... Oh was the first person to come on the scene and before he notified anyone including the police he took the gun rearranged the bodies shot his brother again and then put the gun in a knot's hand and then called the police how did they figure that out this was later verified by evidence left on the gun that a knot had not fired it she didn't have any gunshot residue (laughs) <laughs> and she didn't have any burns. She didn't have any... Uh, her fingerprints were not on the gun where they should have been. And where they were, she wouldn't have been holding it. Hmm. 
and they found you know there's there's so many different ways depending on how long i couldn't figure out how long it was between them actually you know david actually killing the two of them and then the brother finding them but also you know just in evidence left behind even a couple of hours difference between two gunshots is going to leave a noticeable difference yeah because the blood will have coagulated differently and yeah and if they if he moved them around yeah if not if a knot had been laying in one position and then he pulled her out of that position to put her into another Mm -hmm. then there's going to be an obvious smear of blood on the floor Mm -hmm. from where she got moved so there's a lot of very clear signs that things were not done correctly in this case that was what the police were looking at the new team looked at and said yeah there shouldn't be any kind of idea that she moved herself after death Mm -hmm. if she died second like that doesn't make sense and so and david afuda did finally admit to staging the scene and doing that but he was not he said he was not involved with the crime. He was just trying to protect his family from the shame. And David Afuda's brother was not brought up on any charges with tampering with the scene or the crime. That seems fucked up. Right? And then in also, because uh, I'm gonna like, this is all kind of happening at the same time, that music show that Anat was supposed to be on. Right. They, the entire cast of the festival, um, got together and performed her song in her memory when she was supposed to perform it. And I was like, oh, it's so sweet and sad. (laughs) Uh, It was a song called called Ballerina. I'm not familiar. I don't know if it's Israeli or what, but if anyone was interested in what song it was, it's called Ballerina. (laughs) In 2001... Anat's remains were finally moved into the main cemetery from the suicide cemetery and she was given full normal burial rites and laid back at rest. Good. Can they take away David's? <laughs> we, we take back your burial rights. No burial rights for you. <laughs> to hell with you now. That's right. You get to go into the to the bad people cemetery. <laughs> so then in 2004... Anat's father sued David Afuda's brother and demanded that the courts recognize David Afuda as the murderer of his daughter. Yes. Um, through a bunch of different stuff going on, this didn't get resolved until 2011. Um, the courts determined that David Afuda did in fact murder Anat Imelec and that she was not in any way associated with the crimes committed. She was a victim. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there was also finally a punishment for his brother's interference in tampering with the scene. Good. He was required to compensate the Alimlik family 300,000 NIS, uh, which is about 87,000 USD. Okay. But that is the, the case. It's very sad that, you know, for some, it's always sad. Any kind of death is always, un- unwarranted death is always sad. Death yeah. is always sad. No. But, you know, to see... Huh? You said, any unwarranted death is always sad. And I went, yes. And you were like, death is always sad. And I said... Death is always sad for somebody. Someone is always going to feel sadness. Okay. (laughs) It's a natural reaction. 
I guess somebody had to like Hitler. <laughs> well, I mean, have you seen 2020? That's... There are a lot of people who like yeah. Hitler. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's sad. Especially but since... Yeah, I mean, to see someone, like, so in, like, starting her life and, like, finding success. And especially and... since her dad, like, was fucking on to him and she was like, nah, he would never do that. Yeah. Like, that's like, sad. Yeah. And I'm happy that the dad went so hard at the police mm-hmm. and they're just like, no, she wouldn't do this. I don't know what else I can tell you yeah. to show that there's no way she would do this. You know, she's Jewish. Like, she's not, you know, it's not something that is taken lightly and she's aware of that. Right. And there's no reason for him to think that she would have given the circumstances of her life at the time. Right. That's not to say that there aren't people who seem completely, you know, even keeled and fine that don't kill themselves suddenly, unexpectedly, mm-hmm. because they just haven't told anybody, you know, they're good at hiding it. But, you know, there's something to a father just adamantly saying, like, no, you guys, there's something, something is wrong here. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy that the police decided to look at it and say, like, oh, yeah, this is obviously not done correctly. (laughs) Well, I hope the ones that uh, were negligent got their comeuppance. I hope so, too, but I don't hold out much hope. Yeah. (laughs) Well. I don't know. Maybe things are really different in Israel. uh, God, I can only hope. Shitty police officers. Uh, Well, my story is not that sad. Oh, good. Uh, it actually takes place underground. Exciting. Uh, and not just because it's a tomb, but um, so I said that this area of Israel, it's like the foothills of Judea, and it's known as the land of a thousand caves. And so this area, um, and like before I get into this, it's like a lot of the references to this area were also, quote, Palestinian in the the articles I was reading and I know that there's a lot of conflict going on about this particular area um and so I'm using this story as my Israel story knowing that there's conflict and we're doing it anyway <laughs> just FYI uh so this is in the Biet Guvren Maresha National Park and so archaeology Archaeological excavations uncovered these tunnels between the, like, this first one that I, this one I'm going to talk about was 1902. And it doesn't seem like okay. these caves were meant for people to live in. The There were various rooms. Um, they varied from spaces for aviculture, like people bred fucking doves down there. And there were <laughs> burial caves and quarries and olive presses. Like, this was just... A series of tunnels used for various things. So, so while people really nice and cool, yeah. And while it, while it wasn't necessarily used for people to live, there were some things I read about how it's possible that early Christians used those spaces like to hide. Yeah. Um, and so, June in 1902, an American theologian named John Peters and a German scholar named Hermann Thiersk, they would 
discover, and I put that in quotes because it's in the Columbus sense of the word, um, <laughs> they would discover. They would find this thing that was already found multiple times and then claim that it is new. Yes. Uh, well, they're archaeologists, June, so it's not like June they're saying, teens. it's not like they're saying, we found this, it's ours. They're just saying, hey, we're archaeologists and we just found this thing that we're going to write about. So at least it's not like a we're claiming it. It's a we're studying it. I don't know. But yeah, we we found India. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so um, so they just they quote discovered it and they call it the Sidonian Cave or the Apollo Phanis Cave. Well, that's a fun. Yeah. Word. Uh, this it is believed to have belonged to a family of wealthy traders from Sidon or. Sidon, I don't know. I'm going to call it Sidon for myself because I think that sounds cooler. Um, what That is within uh, modern day Lebanon, by the way. And that area was likely settled or that family had likely settled in the area between the 2nd and 3rd century BC. So it was real old. Yeah. So history lesson. Sidon is the Greek word for fishery and it was a city within the Phoenician uh, port city area. It was used for trade. Sidonians were the first to create the purple dye that is so rare and expensive that purple became synonymous with royalty. And also, also Sidon is the name of one of the characters in Breath of the Wild. That's a from the um, fish race. I forgot their name. Neat. The Zora. Yeah. Or are they not the Zora? And no, they're Zora. Okay. I just couldn't remember. Uh, but part of Alexander the Great's Phoenician conquest in 332 BC came here, and consequently, the place got all Greek and shit. <laughs> like you do. Like you do. Hellenistic, as they say. This is important for later. Oh, it call back. It's later. The tomb. <laughs> The tomb boasts 30 ancient inscriptions and five different graffitis. They are elaborately painted with Hellenistic symbols, mythical figures, and animals. So there's Cerberus, Greek doggo with three heads. Hound of Hades. Um, (laughs) He is depicted on the door jam, on the right side of the door jam. He's like, hey, I'm here to be at the door, I guess. I don't know. Uh, Upon entering the tomb, you will see painted on your right a leopard, (laughs) a lion, a snake, a giraffe, asterisk, a wild boar, a griffin, an oryx, a rhinoceros, an elephant, and a, quote, figure representing Africa. Would you like to know the asterisk for giraffe? Because it's funny. Does it have a short neck? Is it a zebra? The giraffe looks super bizarre because it's taken from the Greek name for giraffe, Camelopardaralis, meaning camel leopard. And it's likely the Sidonians had never actually seen a giraffe. Oh, God, it's like that taxidermy lion. Probably. I couldn't actually find any great pictures of the so-called giraffe, but hilariously i I wanted to mention that um there is also in the north the north northwestern corner a depiction of two fish 
one had an elephant trunk, and the other had a large head with a snout like a rhinoceros. These animals were thought to be a part of the Alexandrian custom known as menagerie drawings. Um, they were influenced by Aristotle's influence, influenced by his influence, yeah, uh, on the popularity of natural sciences. Uh, so that was becoming a big thing. And so people were super into animals. And Ptolemyus II, he actually had a menagerie. And so these pictures and depictions of animals over tombs became very popular. Eagles are standing on a wreath around the entrance to the rare burial tomb. It's so weird that you said that because I literally just like scrolled down to a picture of an eagle. Oh, man. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> there was an in there's like a picture of an incense burner on the back of three griffins, which at the time, I guess, were still thought to be real things. There's a rooster. It kept saying a cock, but I was like, I'm not saying a cock whose crow was meant to scare off demons. Oh, I think I found the giraffe. Oh, good. Asterisk. A, there's also a phoenix to symbolize the uh, life after death. But you're not paying attention, so I'll wait for you. You're too busy. No, I am. You're searching. A phoenix, a phoenix that symbolizes life after oh, death. Maybe. Also, here is the giraffe asterisk i think it just looks like a deer with really long legs and a long neck that's about right um it's got a little deer butt so uh the entrance of the tomb had alcoves along the walls called loculi uh which were gabled openings and there were seven along each wall and each tomb or each tomb and the whole tomb like all of the rooms had about 41 of these in total it's speculated that the dead would be placed in the alcoves for the first year to give their bodies time to decay before being moved to a more permanent long living quarter. Over one permanent loculus, British archaeologists found an inscription which read, Apollophanus, son of Sesmaios, who headed the Sidonians at Mersha for 33 years. He was treasured as the best and as one who loved his kindred exceedingly. He died after living 74 years. This was actually a rare piece of evidence that was directly stating that the city was called Mersha or Marisha. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Uh, but the name was not preserved. And so the local Arab community uh, apparently called the place Santana. Uh, so People were like, oh, look, that's what it's called. Or that's what it was called in ye olden days. <laughs> There's a tomb within the tomb called the Cave of Musicians. And it depicts... Go ahead, take a guess. Uh, instruments. Actually, it was just beans. I mean... I'm kidding. It, was, it just had musicians on it. <laughs> uh, so the paintings uh, of these mu musicians were actually described as stout and jovial, including a woman playing a harp and a man with a double reeded flute, the ones that you typically see in like Greek and drawings, Greek and Grecian. And they're like, doo -doo -doo -doo, on both hands, you know? Yeah. So when Peters and Thiersk uh, arrived, they found some of the paintings of the human figures had had their faces destroyed by the locals. 
This is apparently considered sacrilegious under Islamic law. Not really familiar with Islamic law. Oh, yeah. Um, you're not supposed to depict people in, like, religious burial art purposes. Hmm. Well, didn't know that. I, I only thought you weren't supposed to draw the dude. Muhammad. I didn't want to say his name. I didn't, I didn't know if I was allowed to say that either. It's a name. <laughs> but yes, uh, so I, I only knew that because I remembered the whole Je suis Charlie thing that happened. Where that French paper dude, the cartoon with Muhammad as a little cartoon in it. Satirical. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so according to the book that the two scholars wrote, um, the heads which had been scratched out were, uh, were effaced. So we were told by the Sheikh of Beit Jabrin, uh, a pious Muslim, who on entering the tombs cried out haram or forbidden. Yep. That is what haram means. Uh, this is the only painted cave from the Hellenistic period in the land of Israel and its whereabouts, where you can see the influence of the Ptolemaic Egyptian rule on uh, Marisha during the third century BC. According to Adi Elric, or Erlick, Erlick, not Elric. I was thinking of, you know, like Edward Elric. <laughs> but he is an archaeologist and art historian from the University of Haifa. Uh, but possibly the most enigmatic inscription found at the site, and the thing I think you're going to enjoy the most, was written over the picture of Cerberus. And it reads thusly. There is nothing left I could do for you, or anything that will give you pleasure. I lay with another, but I love you, the one most dear to me. In the name of Aphrodite, I am glad of one thing, that I have your coat for collateral. But I flee and leave you to your freedom. Do as you will. Do not bang on the wall. The noise is heard inside. We will signal each other with movements. Let this be our signal. Creepy. The fuck does that mean, right? So, Peter and Thiersk uh, wrote in their book that the inscription is evidently erotic and appears to give us a glimpse into an ancient romance. A maiden has written on the door of the tomb a message to the lover whom alone she really loves to arrange for further intercourse between them, which is henceforth possible only in the sign language of nods and becks. The spacious tomb as yet quite quite or almost unused outside of the city must have been a convenient rendezvous for the lovers here in the twilight shadows they may have waited for one another on the benches and while they waited scribbled all sorts of signs on the wall yeah i mean nothing makes me want to have sex more than being in, in a burial tomb don't yuck my yum <laughs> Uh, Chava Braka Korzakova of Baralan University says that the inscription wasn't meant to be taken literally, but like teens in the early 2000s putting lyrics of on their AIM status, it was a passage from a drama of a genre close to Greek new comedy, and the quote was inscribed by a person who had been waiting in an abandoned funeral cave for a tryst. Like, somebody wrote on their their aim status cut my life into pieces this is my last resort (laughs) 
Oh, that ages me. So, scholars who worked on a compendium of ancient inscriptions from the region called, bear with me on this, Corpus Encryptonium Iudere Palestinae. That's the name. Uh, they reference one American scholar of Semitic studies who, quote, uses the story, who, who, I'm sorry, who says this, this passage uses the story of Judah and Tamar to establish the practice that a man might leave a pledge with a prostitute. It's suggested by the Book of Amos that this pledge was often a cloak and that the writer of this inscription was telling her customer she had his coat and she was waiting for her money. I mean, checks out. That was outlined in the little sonnet on the wall. So, another one. Avnar Ecker, he is a professor of classical archaeology at uh, Barlon. He suspects that we will never actually know. He claims that the sex worker theory was invented by a man. Figures. Uh, He says, personally, I prefer the interpretation that divides the inscription between two speakers, a dead man and a living woman. He's dead and she's alive and has moved on. He grants her permission to go on with her life and beyond the cave walls and is glad that she's kept his coat as a keepsake. The inscription. That's what I was kind of thinking. Yeah. The inscription is at the cave's entrance above the painting of Cerberus. Cerberus and the inscription symbolize the boundary between the world of the living and the world of the dead, between the dead lover and the living woman. Yeah. I mean, that's. I, I definitely was thinking that it had something to do with that, like, moving on and being allowed to move on, sort of sentiment that was where my mind first went so the idea of it being like cheaters israel episode like wasn't i wasn't into that yeah um but peter and peters and thirsk actually cite this as an option in their own translation even though they favor the tryst thing and in their version it's like the dead man to his living lover saying i lie with another death though loving thee greatly and then the woman to her dead lover saying, but by Aphrodite of one thing, I am very glad that thy coat, my, that your coat remained as a pledge to me. Yeah. And so there's definitely speculation that it could have been that. And what's interesting about that one is that Atlas Obscura is where I found this article about this specific inscription. And there was a mention at the bottom of their, their article that said, this kind of echoes that uh, Kubler-Ross model of the five stages of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. I'm upset, you know, have my cloak, whatever. And I, I was like, that's really interesting. I didn't I didn't think about that as I was reading it. But rereading yeah. it with that in mind, it was like, oh, there's all those clues. Yeah. So that's it. But I really just, I was like, that, that fucking cave is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I was I was looking at pictures of it like as you were talking, and it's super pretty. Mm-hmm. There are some pictures where it's like obviously been kind of cleaned up and renovated and stuff, but I found a couple where it's um, still has all the like fallen rocks. It almost looks like pictures they took immediately after opening mm-hmm. it. 
end scene and there's just like debris and rocks and everything kind of in the way and what's what i think is fascinating is that i would have never thought to place greek shit in the middle of israel in the middle of like really close to jerusalem jerusalem israel jerusalem Jerusalem. so yeah i was pretty uh i'm like that's really fucking weird and cool yeah i mean it's i think we as modern people because our world is so open thanks to travel and the internet and stuff like that that it's so much easier to like i can go to walmart right now and get you know japanese imported whatever Mm -hmm. because it's so easy to get but when you stop and you think about like how bizarre it is that like a few years ago we we didn't know how far as an example that the vikings got like we knew that they had made it to north america but how far east have they made it and then a burial site gets opened up and there's a jade trinket from that they're able to date back to forever ago china mm-hmm. and it's like okay so they got all the way to the coast on china and back to have this in their burial mm-hmm. you know like it's so crazy to think about how far individuals traveled like to think about how vast the ottoman empire was before it was finally broken up like the ottoman empire extended into france you know like and i think that there's a lot of people who don't recognize that it was basically just that entire strip Mm -hmm. of you know southern europe and northern africa to india was just the ottoman empire (laughs) and for a long time like even into like our grandparents lifetimes there were sections of it that was just like the ottomans and like (laughs) so it's it's crazy to think about and to remember like oh yeah well the greek and roman empires kind of went crazy Mm -hmm. like they took over a huge amount of land in their you know at their peak their peak years and generations and it's just it's something that i think because our world has been so set with the majority of countries and areas for so long that it's hard for us to be like oh yeah no this isn't that like it's weird to find this thing and it's Mm -hmm. like oh but you know there's a joke um, in a historical reenactment group that I used to be a part of that was saying um, they're surprised that they haven't found evidence of the Vikings on Mars yet <laughs> because of how just huge, how they just went everywhere. Right. And there are even more cultures that I'm sure we don't know the full extent of how far they did travel or could have traveled had they wanted to. Yeah. And so that was that was the most interesting part of that for me was I was like, oh, ha ha, some cheater in a fucking tomb was how I got started reading that. And it was like, why is there <laughs> Wait why second. is there a camel leopard? <laughs> why is there Cerebus? Why is Spot in this tomb? <laughs> well, anyway, I guess that's it. That's all I got. It's in such good shape. Too. Yeah, it really is. Like it's been hidden for. You know, it was hidden for all those years and then rediscovered in 
1902 and the fact that it wasn't just absolutely for lack of a better word destroyed i i loved looking at the different like you can see the grecian like above the one door you can see like the the frame and it just looks kind of it has that grecian vibe to, yeah. And, yeah and there are the big urns and everything yeah but there's only like one wall that's kind of messed up from the pictures I'm seeing. And then, like, the stairs are just not great. Mm. But, you know, stairs are always one of the first things that's gonna break down normally. But it's really impressive. It's impressive how vivid... I mean, I know it's underground. It's not been exposed to, like, natural light and everything. But it's crazy even still that how vivid these colors and images are and the amount of time it's just that's the thing that's always impressive to me about these like ancient tombs and stuff is like the time it had to have taken to carve out these seven 14 i guess if there's seven on each side there's and then three at the front there's 41 in total but just the entranceway has 14 yeah and it's like it makes you wonder how long how long did each one of those take? Well, and then to dedicate to be like we're going to do 41 of these. This thing that took us 3 months to do. <laughs> well, and one of the interesting things about that is it it might not have been as hard as you think because a lot of the things I was reading it says the the floors are basically chalk. Like it's a pretty soft situation down there. My thing after reading that was more how did it stay up all this time like what's the support system is chalk really that strong like jackson eats chalk i mean there's there's a thing to like the what is it i can't remember there's it's like um sand and different things like that how the different ways that you can organize the material Mm -hmm. like the different ways that it's set up makes it a like a completely different matter that you're dealing with almost so it could be that like any of these walls on their own wouldn't be able to stand the test of time but the fact that they have them all so evenly spaced and the weight on top is compressing it down the, the to right, keep it like weight bearing on everything. Yeah, it's like the aqueducts. Yeah. You know, like those things should not still be standing, <laughs> but holy shit if they aren't still standing <laughs> and functional. Like there's so many things like that that are so impressive to just like is it sheer luck? I mean maybe a little but like is it also just you know excellent engineering before a world knew what engineering was i guess so because i mean it all looks so precise too like it's well measured it's all everything is in its spot which makes it feel like the sizing and everything is very intentional for a purpose which might be the integrity of keeping it standing right and there are like all of the tunnels in there are super interesting there's like these giant bell caves that are just like huge round caves 
So like the whole thing was was pretty fascinating to know that there's just like a giant tunnel system underneath the city that nobody really used. Nobody lived in it. It was just keeping my birds. Yeah, I bet. I mean, there there has to be functional other functional purpose for it as well. Like the um, what is it in England? I mean, I know France has the catacombs, but I want to say there's a part of England that has like an underground road system. And it was, like, used for storage a lot because of the temperature. I was going to say, you mean the tube? <laughs> I mean, that is underground, but that is not what I was considering. Anyway, yeah. so is that... I mean, that's all I got. that Israel? Yeah. Israel? Jerusalem? Jerusalem. I took my pills late. That's probably what this is. I'm probably feeling a little... Because my... My body's like <laughs> that was a good face. You were supposed to take that eight hours ago. <laughs> All right, are you ready for this end? Oh, sure. Thanks for joining us today as we explored the strange and unusual stories from Israel. Next week, we'll be taking a look at the strange and unusual in the Canary Islands. We hope that you'll reach out to us with your own experiences. We want your stories, your questions, and your feedback. Send us an email at strangeunusualpodcast at gmail.com. If you're sending a story, we ask that you just put listener story in the subject line so we can sort through those a little bit more easily. Did you ever stage a crime to look like someone killed someone? Have you ever seen a camel leopard? <laughs> we want to know. Yeah, I definitely want to know if you've seen a camel leopard. <laughs> you can- <Come> leopard. <laughs> a lepimol. <laughs> You can also find us on Instagram at strange underscore unusual underscore podcast or on our personal accounts, Roya Rampage and Calamity Casey, where we post the weird shit in our personal lives. You can find us on Twitter at underscore strange unusual at Calamity Casey and at Roya Rampage. We are on Facebook. Just search for the strange and unusual podcast. If you'd like, you can go over to patreon.com slash strange unusual and join us there where we will be posting really fun wacky wet gushy whale stories among <laughs> other things uh for instance in one episode roya teaches us how to properly handle a ouija board she says i do don't <laughs> yeah i definitely do say don't. uh we offer polls we have different um tiers for everybody so from like what's it two dollars to twenty dollars Yes. And from the lowest, you can join us on our Discord and participate in our polls. And to the highest, where you say, hey, bitches, this is what you're talking about this week. And we and we do it. <laughs> uh, but we do understand there's a lot going on right now. We've got the COVID. We've got civil rights issues. Everything's happening. So if you are unable to support us financially, we do just ask that you reach out, review, rate, Give us a thumbs up, pass us on to your friends, whatever you do to make it happen. Make it happen. We need algorithms and stuff. And we'll read your review if it's a good one. If you're mean to us, you can go fuck yourself. The end. All right, good work. Thanks. <laughs> I'm getting better. We need, we need algorithms. <laughs> if you can all tell, I'm not the professional.
I'm not either. I don't know where you get Every time from. we do this, you're like, oh, here, here's, I'm just really concise and exactly what I need to say. And I'm like, algorithms and space monkeys. Oh, that's the title of the episode. <laughs> so, anyway. Algorithms and space monkeys in Israel. So, come and join us on Patreon if you can. And if not, write us a review. Rate, subscribe, share us with your friends. Algorithms. Good work. Space monkeys. Bye. <laughs> okay, yeah, bye.